Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the choices facing Russia, Ukraine and NATO, since neither Russia or Ukraine can win the war underway, leaving the possibilities of either escalation that could lead to nuclear war or negotiation which appears stalled, with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov calling the state of the peace negotiations in Istanbul dismal. Joining us is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russia Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, and we will discuss a third option of an indefinite stalemate with a ceasefire along a heavily armed border in Europe, much more unstable than the Iron Curtain that divided Europe during the Cold War. Then we go to Berlin to speak with Daniela Schwarzer, Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia of the Open Society Foundations. A renowned expert in European affairs and transatlantic and international relations, she is an honorary professor of political science at the Free University in Berlin and a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center. Previously, she was director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations and served on the executive team of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. We'll discuss the meeting of 40 nations in Germany at which Germany pledged to deliver heavy weapons to Ukraine, something the Scholz government has been dragging its feet on since the war began. Then finally, we'll look into the secret agreement made between China and the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, which has the U.S. warning it would have to respond if China were to establish a military base there. Joining us is Cleo Pascal, a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union and India and many others, and is the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. We will discuss how this brewing crisis is impacting the upcoming Australian elections on May the 21st, with the current Conservative Prime Minister on the defensive for what the opposition is calling, quote, the worst failure of Australian foreign policy in the Pacific in 80 years. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is George Beebe, who is the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russian Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russian Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Welcome to Background Briefing, George Beebe. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it does seem that rhetorically things are getting quite dangerous. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has set off alarm bells on state television just yesterday, I think it was, when he said this conflict in Ukraine is escalating into the possible nuclear war, and that is serious and it is real. And Russian state media for the longest time have been talking about nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So you make the point, which seems pretty fundamental, that Ukraine can't win this war, Russia can't win this war, so there were two options. One, escalate, and if NATO escalates, that could lead to a nuclear war, or two, negotiation. So it looks like negotiation is the only realistic path, right? 
So in addition to escalation and a negotiated settlement, there's a third possibility here that we need to take very seriously. And that's one of uh, a long-term uh, stalemate, uh, a, uh, a condition where um, there's a division of Ukraine de facto, uh, but not agreed, uh, a long-term division of Europe, uh, and uh, a festering confrontation between NATO and Russia uh, that lasts many, many years, similar to the situation in the Cold War where we had a divided Germany and uh, an Iron Curtain that had descended on Europe. But in current conditions, this would be when we would have no rules of the game, like we did during the Cold War, that helped to ensure that that state of hostility didn't spiral into a direct war between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. All of the rules, or at least most of the rules that uh, govern that Cold War situation have disappeared, and new ones have not been uh, reached that uh, can mitigate the, uh, the chances that this all goes horrifyingly bad with Russia. So, uh, I think the direction that we're heading right now is is either uh, near-term escalation uh, or some sort of long-term, very unstable stalemate on the battlefield. Well, that seems to comport with Putin's strategy since 2014, which has been to destabilize the country and weaken it, and for Ukraine never to be able to really become a functioning state. So... That would be consistent with his strategy so far, wouldn't it? Well, I think with one exception. Um, I don't think his end goal in Ukraine was uh, an unstable country altogether. Um, that sort of instability uh, in a neighboring country causes some problems for Russia. What Putin has wanted all along was to preclude the possibility that Ukraine could uh, integrate into the NATO alliance or otherwise uh, host U.S. or NATO military facilities that would in turn prove threatening to Russian security. Now, you either do that by uh, some sort of an agreement with the West that Ukraine would not join, or you do it uh, by creating conditions inside Ukraine which uh, prevent that sort of eventuality, such as a long-term festering conflict that is unsettled, uh, or some sort of uh, federal arrangement with the uh, pro-Russian eastern regions of the country that, that allow them sufficient clout in Kiev's decision-making to prevent that kind of uh, move. Um, or you actually take over the country. Uh, I think that uh, so far, uh, Russia has so so much stumbled on the battlefield that the uh, the option of taking over the country is off the table. Russia is simply not capable of doing that. And again, I'm speaking with George Beebe, who's the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as director of Russia analysis at the CIA and as White House advisor on Russian matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is the Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. But it could end up with some gains with a land bridge if they take Mariupol, cutting the Ukraine off from the Sea of Azov. They're already blockading the, the Black Sea coast, so the country can't import or export. It's landlocked. They do have a lot of leverage, surely. Well, they have some leverage, that's true. They have made some gains in the South and in the East. Uh, not enough that I think Putin is satisfied that uh, the uh, juice is worth the, the squeeze, to use a, uh, an expression. Um, he hasn't achieved enough that he could uh, seek uh, peace without having a, a rather humiliating situation on his hands. Uh, Russia's ability to uh, take the entire southern coasts of Ukraine, I think, is quite dubious at this point. And they can't maintain a naval blockade for all that long of Ukraine. So although they do have some leverage, um, they're not in a position right now where they can dictate terms to Kiev in some sort of settlement. But could they make life more difficult or, or improve their military situation with an amphibious landing in Moldova? I mean, I don't know about Moldova's defense capabilities, but 
There are explosions happening now in Transnistria, the Russian enclave, similar to the enclave they have in Donetsk and Luhansk, and that has the fingerprints of the FSB provocation, blowing up their own radio towers, etc. Is there a possibility that they could try and capture some more of Moldova and then and sort of outflank the Ukrainians in the West? Well, I think that possibility does exist. It's not a strong possibility. Uh, obviously, the Russians would love a situation in which they took the entire southern coastline of Ukraine and linked uh, Russia proper uh, to the Transnistrian Republic, uh, which is a pro-Russian uh, separatist enclave in Moldova. Uh, I at this point, uh, have not seen the kind of military competence demonstrated on the battlefield by the Russians, which would make me think they could actually pull that off. Uh, I think it would be a mistake and over an extension uh, to attempt that right now. Uh, the Russians need to focus on the line of contact in Donbass, in the eastern portions of Ukraine. They have their hands full capturing all of the uh, separatist territory that Putin has recognized as independent of Ukraine. Uh, right now, they, they uh, militarily occupy only a portion of the territory that they have recognized as independent. So until they're able to capture that on the battlefield, and that's very much an open question, I don't think their attention is going to turn to Transnistria or the rest of that uh, southern Ukrainian coastline. Well, it was brought up recently by a senior Russian commander, but it may well have been just sort of bragging or saber-rattling. But let's talk about negotiation. You've got UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in Moscow now. He was on Monday. He was in Turkey meeting with Erdogan, who's trying to broker a peace deal. Apparently, in the conversations that he had with Putin, Putin said that they were making progress in Istanbul, until the Bucha massacre, and which Putin said was a provocation made up by the West and the Russian army had nothing to do with it, but the Ukrainians walked out and they were making progress and they hoped to make progress again. So what do you make of that? Well, I do think the Russians uh, might be open to some sort of negotiated settlement following some sort of success on the battlefield in, in Donbass. Until that time, I don't think they're going to be negotiating seriously. I think we're in a phase where the Russians have been uh, attempting to feel out how much flexibility the Ukrainians might have. The Ukrainians have indicated that they could contemplate official neutrality for Ukraine, provided that that included uh, some significant security guarantees for Ukraine that it wouldn't be subject to this sort of an invasion by Russia again. That's going to be a very tricky sticking point to, to negotiate those terms. Uh, the other major sticking point is going to be territory. Uh, the Ukrainians have not indicated any willingness to concede territory to the Russians. Uh, the Russians, I don't believe, uh, are going to be willing to withdraw from any territory that they hold. And I think they expect to make even more gains on the battlefield. So. Um, we're not at a point yet where I think any side is willing to uh, contemplate the kind of serious concessions that they each would have to make in order to find a settlement that nobody likes but everyone feels they can live with. Um, the fact that the, the Russians uh, have been talking to Erdogan uh, suggests that they have not closed the door to that uh, settlement at some point in the future. So you don't think Gutierrez is going to pull anything off? No, I don't believe so. I think his focus has been on humanitarian concerns, trying to find some agreed corridors that can pr protect civilian prop populations right now. But in a uh, hearing before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today, Secretary of State Blinken was uh, asked by Senator Rand Paul, who's essentially taking a pretty pro-Russian position, which many on the conservative right of the Republican Party seem to be along with uh, Tucker Carlson and others in the course of their to and fro, which is not exactly friendly. Blinken said that the Biden administration is open to a peace deal and they're open to Ukraine becoming neutral and unaligned. So is that some measure of progress? Well, um, 
we're getting mixed signals, I think, from Biden administration officials. Uh, just uh, a couple of days earlier, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin had indicated that uh, not only could Ukraine achieve victory on the battlefield, but the United States and a host of other Ukraine supporters also believed that that was a possibility. Uh, so the administration, yes, is, is saying that they would not uh, be more Ukrainian than the Ukrainians, as uh, Secretary Blinken put it in that exchange with Senator Paul, uh, in that if the Ukrainians believe they want to reach a settlement, the U.S. won't stand in the way. On the other hand, I think the thrust of U.S. policy right now is not so much to incentivize a compromise as it is to uh, defeat the Russians, uh, to degrade the Russian military, to punish uh, Russia to the extent that it won't uh, contemplate this kind of aggression again. Uh, and only after those uh, tasks are accomplished might we be in, uh, more interested in trying to encourage some sort of settlement. But it doesn't seem to me that the United States is quite there yet. Well, it didn't seem helpful, in fact, that Secretary of Defense Austin said that he wants the Russian military weakened. I mean, that is, that's what Russian state media keeps saying is the motive of the West all along, and particularly the United States, that they're out to get Russia. So not exactly a helpful signal. Well, that's exactly the Russian point. They've argued from the very beginning that this was not a war with Ukraine, but rather a war with the United States and NATO and that this was essentially defensive on uh, Russia's part, that they were fighting against uh, a hostile NATO alliance, which had been expanding uh, over the course of a couple of decades, uh, ever closer to Russia's uh, borders and, and into what they regard as, as the, the, the great Russian heartland. Uh, so, the degree to which the United States acknowledges that uh, we are engaged in a de facto proxy war here that's directed at Russia, uh, that reinforces Russia's messaging, and I think deepens their conviction that that's in fact the situation they're dealing with. So could it mean then, George Beebe, that Putin will pull the trigger on a mobilization? He so far resisted doing that because he sold the war to the Russian people as a special military operation, not a war. Could he therefore because he's, he's getting a lot of pressure from the ultranationalists and the right, and he's got people in, within his own administration like uh, Petrushev and others, and of course you've got the uh, Dugin and all these rabid nationalists, hawks in the chorus of them weighing in, saying that it's time to f have full mobilization and call of the war. Could that be the next shoe to drop? Well, it could very well be. I think uh, there is little doubt that uh, the Russian political right is uh, in the ascent right now, uh, that Putin is increasingly uh, surrounding himself with those types who are making exactly the arguments that, that you're describing. And also there's a practical matter. Um, the longer this war goes on, uh, the more Russia suffers losses of its uh, professional troops um, the more uh, the Russians will be compelled to mobilize uh, for a longer uh, war. And um, that could prove somewhat controversial in Russia, and it's something that Putin has resisted doing. But over time, I think the political forces and the logic of the battle in Ukraine may compel him to do that. So is there, therefore, an argument for letting Putin have some kind of cosmetic victory here that he can dress up as a victory? Well, unless Putin has something that he can at least plausibly pretend is uh, an advance for Russia in some way, uh, we're not going to get a settlement. Uh, the Russians are not going to agree to that. Uh, so um, it's not a happy outcome for Ukraine or the West. But uh, in politics, you have to compare your, your choices to what is realistically an alternative outcome rather than to what you might ideally want to achieve. And I think 
the the realistic alternatives to an uncomfortable settlement in which the Russians get a few things that they believe uh, they have to have uh, is escalation or a, a highly unstable and highly damaging uh, line of, of more or less permanent confrontation running through Ukraine and Europe. And neither of those two alternatives uh, are very appealing, I don't believe. So therefore, it's possible on Victory Day, May the 9th, the day that's a big deal in the Soviet Union and Russia celebrating the end of World War II, you could have a Victory Day celebration, or say we captured Mariupol, which they've already said they've captured, which apparently is not the case, or Victory Day could be the occasion in which Putin fully mobilizes for a war. Yeah, I think both of those are possibilities. I, I think they will advertise the operation in Mariupol as a success, uh, and you know, whether or not that whether or not that comports to reality is going to be an open question by May 9th. We'll have to see. But uh, yeah, sure, it is possible that that he uses that occasion to really try to rally the Russian nation around this cause. So, it is a bit ironic, though, isn't it, George Beebe, that already you could make the case to some extent that Ukraine is a part of NATO. They're getting all these NATO weapons, and finally the Germans have gotten off the dime, and they're starting to supply weapons along with tanks coming in from Poland. A lot of this stuff seems to be coming too late or later than it should have, but it is coming in. And then you've got the possibility of escalation there because Russia's saying now they'll they'll target these NATO convoys delivering the, the weapons. So... How much has this backfired on Putin in as much as whatever the outcome in Ukraine is? Ukraine is maybe a neutral and non-aligned country, as Blinken has said is, is a possibility or at least something that the U.S. could accept. They'll still be heavily armed, won't they? They're not going to disarm. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, Putin has made, I think, uh, a formidable strategic error and and one that has put Russia's own security in greater peril rather than less peril as a result of these miscalculations. Um, and I, I do agree that there's no way that uh, Ukraine is going to disarm uh, as part of any kind of an agreement on, on this. Uh, and there's no way at this point that the Russians can actually defeat all of Ukraine uh, and prevent that sort of armament from continuing. So uh, he has created himself uh, quite a security problem as a result of all of this. Well, George Beebe, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with George Beebe, who's the director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as director of Russia analysis at the CIA and as White House advisor on Russian matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral Into a Nuclear Catastrophe. We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Berlin to discuss the meeting of 40 nations in Germany at which Germany pledged to deliver heavy weapons to Ukraine, something the Scholz government has been dragging its feet on since the war began. Did it all get real? I guess it's real enough They got refrigerators full of blood Another century spent pointing guns At anything that moves I set my watch to the I hear the crowd count down till the bomb gets dropped I always figured there'd be time enough I never let it get me down But I can't help it now Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Berlin is Danielle Schwarzer, who is the Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia of the Open Society Foundations a renowned expert on European affairs and transatlantic and international relations. She is an honorary professor of political science at the Free University of Berlin and a senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School at Belfast Center. And previously she was director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations and serves on the executive team of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniela Schwarzer. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And what did you make of the meeting at Ramstein Air Force Base of 
40 countries, uh, some of them quite diverse in terms of not necessarily being members of NATO, Qatar, Israel, sent observers, Kenya, Tunisia, Japan. I mean, it seemed to me, at least, that maybe this meeting was meant to get the host country off the dime, Germany. Is that is that a fair assessment? I think the most important message, first of all, is that so many many countries stand behind Ukraine in the war that Russia is is fighting in Ukraine. And uh, the statements were very clear today and have been really over the past uh, two months of war that this war is in no way justified and that Europe uh, and other partners in the world, the U.S., Foremost, but also now, as we see, uh, partners in all all parts of the world um, actually stand there to support Ukraine. And Germany, indeed, as you mentioned, um, got a strong message very surely, surely from its allies and its European partners. And actually, today, indeed, was an announcement of a policy shift on the German side. But what explains the reluctance of the Schulz government to? deliver heavy weapons. And when the war broke out, Schultz made some pretty strong statements, but we've been getting reports that he's been slow walking efforts to send heavy armaments to Ukraine and only now is releasing some. Yes, the debate has been going on among uh, European leaders within Germany for weeks. And it has been increasingly difficult for the German government to explain why it says, on the one hand, it fully supports Ukraine and thinks that this war is unjustified, that the crimes that are being committed are are horrendous, and that you know Ukraine deserves all support. And then Germany didn't do two things: one, it didn't uh, deliver heavy weapons. And two, it uh, didn't support those countries that argued for an immediate oil and gas embargo. This latter point is is more complicated, and we'll maybe come to that. But for the weapons part, um, in February, only a few days into the war, uh, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, um, announced that Germany would deliver weapons to Ukraine. That already was an important change of policy because uh, Germany previously wouldn't deliver weapons into conflict zones. Those were defensive weapons, um, but Germany started delivering then and continued to do so. However, it stopped short of delivering heavy weapons, and the pressure was very, very strong. The the further the war evolved, uh, that it needs to support uh, other Europeans who took very, very important initiatives to actually deliver everything they could to Ukraine, and Germany kept... uh, you know, kept in waiting. And I think the the major reason for this was really a concern of not escalating the situation. Uh, This was at least uh, the thing that the government continued to say, that uh, any move that could bring Russia further to an escalation of the war, either beyond the territory of Ukraine or uh, that it could actually use uh, even more destructive weapons that that was the reason why why Germany said no we we won't go into this but now the pressure was i think so high because of two reasons one is that others delivered and some actually credibly argue there's not much more left that they could deliver while while Germany uh you know was sitting on on tanks it could deliver um and then secondly the war atrocities that we see every single day and the brutality of the war that Russia wages um, made it morally more and more difficult to not deliver um, those tanks that are now promised. And I think it is it is a, a late move by the German government. Um, it could have happened earlier, but it's important that now Germany has corrected its, its uh, position of just waiting and seeing. And so I'm frankly glad that this happened today. 
And again, I'm speaking with Daniela Schwarzer, who's joining us from Berlin, where she's the Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia of the Open Society Foundations, a renowned expert in European affairs and transatlantic and international relations. She's an honorary professor of political science at the Free University of Berlin and a senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center. And previously, she was director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations and served on the executive team of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. But in terms of criticism from his own coalition, Scholz has been getting criticized by the Free Democrat leader, Mary Agnes Strzok-Zimmerman, who basically questioned whether Scholz was a suitable leader at this particular moment. And also the Greens, uh, Anton Hofreiter, said that, that the obstacle for further helping Ukraine was in the Chancellor's office. And we know that the Green Party leader has been very outspoken. So how is he holding his coalition together if he's getting this kind of heat from within? The criticism comes mostly from Parliament. That doesn't mean it's not important. It is important. And, and by the way, it was justified. Um, but what, what at the same time seems to work very well is the co- coordination among uh, the ministers in the government. Um, and here there are very few signs that there's disagreement and, and a lot of criticism of Scholz. Uh, things seem to run smoothly there, but it is indeed interesting and, and quite unique um, that, first of all, the two coalition partners through their parliamentary uh, group leaders uh, took such a, a strong, outspoken position on criticizing Scholz. And then secondly, that his own party was also uh, openly uh, in disagreement over some things with his party chair see, saying uh, the government shouldn't move uh, into delivering uh, heavy weapons, that this was a, a big danger. So here you see that uh, there is a lot of debate in Germany at the moment. Um, and all the more is the position uh, that the liberal um, parliamentary, no, not parliamentary group chair, but the chair of the uh, defense committee, Agnes Strapp, Zimmermann, um, that she voiced and you just quoted, she said he, he doesn't exert strong leadership. And actually, this was reflected in opinion poll data recently that roughly 60% of Germans answered to the question of an opinion poll that Der Spiegel, a major Newsweekly, published that they don't think he's actually leading very strongly. And this is, yeah, this is a, a weak result um, only uh, four months into, into office. So he has corrected course again today, and I think he will need to be far more outspoken and uh, clear within Germany to show the way and and say where he is going, and also with European partners who have been strongly criticizing Germany for for dragging her feet over the past weeks. And so is Zelensky. I mean, he he didn't want the German president, Steinmeier, to, to show up in Kiev. Yes, there are two stories where this happened. One is that he uh, didn't want him to come, but Steinmeier wanted to come. And then the other story is uh, the one told in Berlin that Steinmeier was never really invited and had never really said he would come. So whatever happened, uh, the relationship between um, Ukraine and Germany on the surface of things wasn't very good over the past um, one or two weeks. However, if you look at the support that Germany actually gives to Ukraine, now beyond the question of heavy weapons, Germany is, after the United States, the second largest single donor um, in terms of states giving to Ukraine. And uh, this was already so before the war, and Germany stepped up its financial support for Ukraine since the war started. And this is a story, as we have spoken about communication and what the government says and what it doesn't say, this is a story that often is not really told. And so um, there is really a need for Germany to clarify how it supports Ukraine. And now that it has actually made that extra step of also delivering heavy weapons, but from a German perspective, this is definitely just one thing. Um, There's much more and the financial support has really increased. But on the other hand, Germany, in effect, is financing Putin's aggression to the tune of $1 billion a day in revenues from imports of Russian gas. And that is the result of a policy which was pretty naive on Russia. 
So Germany relies heavily, even still today, on Russian gas and oil imports. And although Europe has been debating energy security and more independence in its procurement since the annexation of Crimea, which, uh, which Russia did in the year 2014, so over those eight years, the EU has been debating the necessity to reduce dependency on Russia, but not enough happened. So since the war broke out, Germany has been working on this. And uh, apparently, um, we are going to uh, end oil imports uh, from Russia earlier than was initially announced. The target was end of 2022, so this year, but it, it may actually happen earlier. Um, and gas imports uh, more difficult to, to reduce um, that is because of the, the share of Russian gas is, is very important in, in total imports. But it is a priority of this government um, to do so. And our minister, interestingly, a green minister for the economy and, and climate, he very early on in the war traveled to the Gulf states to find short-term replacement for Russian energy imports. And so diversification is going on. But the truth of the matter is it is very hard to correct these policies which have been built over years, including the idea to have another pipeline, Nord Stream 2, to bring gas from Russia into Germany, um, this can't be corrected overnight. Um, so Germany sits with that and is indeed criticized by, by many for, uh, for, yeah, for these policy choices of the past. But I would say there's a very strong engagement at the moment by this new government, which is in place since December, to actually uh, reduce dependency on Russia. So is there a, some kind of, not just an addiction to ga Russian gas, but an addiction to the sort of Vandalderst handle idea of change through trade? Has it taken the Social Democrats a long time to divest themselves of that mindset? Yes, the Social Democrats uh, were the architects of a policy uh, which essentially made a bet saying uh, if we trade more with Russia, if we uh, tighten our economic relationship, eventually uh, Russia will change for the better. It will be a more open country. It will maybe even transition to democracy. Um, and it will be a better neighbor for us because a more stable one, a less aggressive one. Um, and Germany really uh, bet on that policy for a very long time. And the energy relationship was one of the building blocks um, because this is really the, the main export good from Russia to Germany. Now, uh, it, took, it took them a long time to, to correct that policy. And uh, the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the war in Georgia in 2008 really wasn't enough of a signal uh, to the political leadership in place then to say, maybe Russia is not what we think it is, and maybe it is more aggressive, and maybe we have to fear more that it will eventually attack more neighbors or attack uh, Ukraine more violently. So over those years, since uh, the annexation of Crimea, Germany has continued uh, its yeah, pretty close economic relationship with Russia and made it even more closer because it decided to continue building the pipeline Nord Stream 2. So right now, I would say most of the social democrats who, who, who used to believe in this theory of change that trade could eventually bring change to Russia. They are absolutely realistic. They look at the country, uh, which is one that wages a war, that commits war crimes, that yeah, is a, is a very, very uh, brutal um, actor in, in Europe's neighborhood. And, and they had to revise all their fundamental assumptions. However, the consequences of, of those policies, um, betting on trade and energy relationships, they, you know, they last. And that's why there's so much pressure on the government to reduce dependency as quickly as possible. And that's why the German government is so uneasy when other European partners say, why don't we do an oil and gas embargo immediately to reduce the money flow into Russia? Um, the costs for Germany and the consequences in terms of really losing parts of our industry uh, would be very high. And there is a big controversy going on in the country, whether that's a price worth paying and how that transition can be best managed. But the number of people who actually argue that Germany should work towards an oil and gas embargo with European partners, that number of voices is actually quite strong by now. So 
just in the last few minutes, let's focus a little on what could be done. Obviously, Germany gave up its nuclear power plants and mothballed them after Fukushima, and it takes about 10 plus years to even build new ones. I don't know whether they're going to bring back the ones that they have. And LNG terminals take years to build and expensive as well. Whereas wind farms can be put up pretty quickly. Is there any talk of ramping up wind energy? Well, a lot is happening at the moment. First of all, two LNG terminals are being built as we speak. Um, That was one of the very early decisions of the German government and announced three days after the beginning of the war that this would eventually happen. Uh, It is nothing totally new to the German debate because um, LNG as a source, as an energy source for Germany has been debated for a while. Plans have been made. The decision was never taken. And so this is this moves rather quickly. And next year, um, the first one um, is probably going to be already functional. Um, yes, wind energy can be can be expanded, and uh, in particular, the Green Party in our current three-party coalition government puts a lot of emphasis that now the opportunity should be used to actually invest more in renewables and not just replace Russian gas by other gas. And so. Uh, there is there is a lot of ongoing investigation how uh, wind energy can be expanded in Germany. There's also the question of actually transporting decentrally produced electricity. How can we work on the grids? Um, how can we uh, improve storage? But then there's also the nuclear question, which, yes, it is back. But I don't think at the moment that is very likely either to extend the running time of the nuclear plants that are just about to be closed down. Um, The companies uh, that uh, own these nuclear plants, which are closing down right now, uh, they came um, forward with a plan how they could be kept uh, as as running nuclear plants. And it turns out this is A, technically risky and B, very expensive not impossible, but it looks like not the best option at this moment. So I think for for some time, uh, Germany will have to rely on other energy imports. um, And that includes, ironically, very probably more nuclear because uh, the French president who was just re-elected last Sunday, one of his priorities is green transition in France, and he bets on nuclear in this and actually uh, announced an extension of nuclear energy production through uh, a big investment program for smaller nuclear plants in France. And as both uh, energy grids are closely connected between the countries, I I would take a bet that in one or two years' time, uh, nuclear energy imported from other neighboring countries is actually uh, higher than it is today. So just in closing, the armaments company in Dusseldorf, Rheinmetall, has been trying to get these 100 years martyr infantry fighting vehicles uh, and 88 years leopard tanks to Ukraine. They've been lobbying for some time. And I take it that now the door is open, along with sending some anti-aircraft tanks as well. How quickly can this stuff get to uh, Ukraine? And obviously there's concern about training the Ukrainians to use the equipment. It does seem that They're in a desperate situation now, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the meeting at Ramstein that we we started out talking about that happened today in Germany, 40 countries meeting to coordinate their efforts to help Ukraine, Millie said the time is not on Ukraine's side. So it's obviously slow in coming, but how are they going to get this stuff there? And now the Russians are talking about targeting it, targeting the uh, supply lines. Yes, that's indeed the threat of the day, that Russians would attack uh, arms deliveries into Ukraine. That concern has been around for a while, which is why, frankly, not so much was in the news about running arms exports. And some, uh, ex- yeah, so some, some governments actually decided to only communicate after the fact, which is quite wise. Uh, so the attention is not drawn towards the transports. Um, the challenge is, of course, uh, transport and training. And um, I would say we have lost valuable time by not taking this decision, which was prepared by the company that is ready to deliver uh, a while ago. And that actually has been saying for, for a number of weeks now, it can deliver. And Ukraine has actually said we would like to buy 
from that company. Um, and only today did the government um, signal that it could move on its decision to actually allow these arms exports. But I suppose that the company has thought through how uh, the training can be best organized on uh, the, the tanks and weapons that they deliver. Um, and there are two stories out there. One has been and, and really also um, told by, by, by leading German politicians that it's impossible to train Ukrainians quickly to handle those tanks. But in particular, Ukrainian militaries and, and also uh, some German militaries have said, no, actually, it is possible. And it will take it will take some time, of course, but it's it's nothing that is entirely out of reach. So I think uh, by now, um, all of this will, will be well prepared because the problems have been identified early on. And there's, as you say, really no time to lose to, to support uh, Ukraine militarily with the new decisions that Germany has taken today. Well, Danielle Schwarzer, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Ian, for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Danielle Schwarzer, who is the Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia of the Open Society Foundations, a renowned expert in European affairs and transatlantic and international relations. She's an honorary professor of political science at the Free University of Berlin and a senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center. And previously, she was director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations and served on the executive team of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the secret agreement made between China and the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, which has the U.S. warning it would have to respond if China were to establish a military base there. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed governments, departments of the United States, United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many others, and she's the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. Welcome to Background Briefing, Cleo Pascal. It's a great, great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, thanks for joining us, Cleo. And there is a, this secret agreement that was made between China and the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands. It has the United States now warning that it would have to respond if China were to establish a military base there how did this thing get so far that you have a secret agreement that nobody knows about made by this Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, which incidentally the United States liberated in World War II, a key battle in the Pacific, of course, was fought on Guadalcanal, which is where the capital is. So how did this thing get as far as it did without the U.S. and Australia apparently recognizing the severity of the issue? That's a, that's a key question. And yes, we are coming up on this summer will be the 80th anniversary of the start of the Guadalcanal campaign. And, um, you know, it's a, a very difficult uh, and emotive issue for the U.S. And, and in fact, the U.S. didn't even have an embassy there uh, until it was announced under this administration that they will be reopening an embassy. And part of the reason for that is uh, an acknowledgement that maybe a U.S. Uh, had, had sort of delegated, if we can put it that way, strategic management of that part of the Pacific to Australia. And in 2019, two countries, the Solomon Islands and Kiribati, switched their diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. And that precipitated everything that we've seen now. And that was a big wake-up call in, D in D.C. that maybe Australia wasn't quite as on top of this as they were telling their, their Five Eyes partners. And specifically to the question of of the security agreement, the many, many 
people in the Solomons are against the switch to China and against the security agreement. And you you framed it absolutely correctly by saying this is a deal between China and the Prime Minister Sogavari, who's very unpopular, very corrupt, very pro-PRC. And the opposition has been trying to get the word out for uh, months uh, that this was coming down the pipeline and that they were very worried about it. In fact, the leader of the opposition has gone on the record as saying he told the Australian High Commissioner in August that a deal like this was being negotiated. Well, in November, there were riots in the streets of the capital going right up to the Prime Minister's residence. So he's not popular in his own country. In fact, the Australian military had to come and intervene and calm things down. So is this a deal that he's making with China, not just to give them military bases, but to also since it involves having Chinese police? Are they, is he basically using China as his own protection detail? Yeah, so, the, so there are two, two different things there, and it's worth going back to what happened in November. So you, you know, as you say, he's deeply unpopular, and on the first day of Parliament reopening in November, there were um, street protests, and they just they wanted to meet with the Prime Minister. It's a small country, population of 600,000. They're used to being able to meet with their leaders and talk things out. Um, he didn't want to meet with the protesters, and his police, in fact, fired uh, tear gas into the crowd and created... Um, uh, kind of a very violent situation. And the crowds were reportedly then directed sort of towards Chinatown. And Chinatown was torched and looted. But within days, the, the people of the capital were cleaning up Chinatown. The mothers were making their sons retur return the looted goods. Things were under control. But Sogavari, the prime minister, used this as an excuse to invite in Australian troops as so-called peacekeepers, even though things were back to a peaceful situation. Uh, one of the reasons he did that was because his own MPs were in the process of defecting and the police had told him, we think you should step down. You are not good for the country. You're creating violence. And it's a sort of, it's not a presidential system. It's a parliamentary system. So you can change leader in mid-course without completely constitutionally. And for him, by getting in the Australians, he could turn to those MPs that were about to defect and say, look, I'm backed not just by China, but also by Australia. Do you really want to go against me? So the Australians um, effectively secured Sogavari and opened the door for him then to invite in Chinese peacekeepers. So Canberra got totally played by Sogavari and the, and the Chinese. And now it's become a, an election issue in the upcoming elections in Australia on May the 21st with the current Prime Minister on the defensive for what the opposition is calling the worst failure of Australian foreign policy in the Pacific in 80 years. Yeah, I mean, this has been a, you know, a bipartisan 20-year effort. <laughs> Both parties have, have contributed to this. Uh, you know, the, there was a civil war in the Solomons that ended with the Townsville Peace Agreement in 2000, and that peace agreement called for devolution of power. Uh, and there was, uh, there were Australian-led peacekeeping forces for almost a decade and a half, the Ramsey deployment in the Solomons, and they never put in place that devolution of power. In fact, it was more convenient for this Australian peacekeeping force to have centralized compliant governance in Oniara. So when the Australians pulled out, they had created a kind of centralized, softened state that made it very easy to kind of shift over to a different sort of vassal relationship with China. So this is, you know, Australia needs to take a very deep look at uh, how it's interacting with the entire Pacific as a whole, because its allies, including its quad allies, Japan sent a delegation that is in the Solomons right now, are questioning uh, Australian leadership in the region. And of course, the Japanese delegation were told by the prime minister, this crooked guy who clearly was bribed by China. I don't know why the Americans and the Australians couldn't have bribed him, because there's obviously a lot at stake uh, strategically. But he told the Japanese delegation that uh, he has no intention of, of allowing Chinese military bases. But even though the agreement is secret, I mean, that's in itself extraordinary. The idea that a prime minister doesn't even let anybody know what it, the agreement is that he made with China. But apparently the Australian intelligence got hold of a draft of it. And apparently it's very clear that it does offer uh, Chinese bases. 
Yeah, I mean, it offers the opportunity for it. I always leaked a deal. They, the, the, the people within the Solomon's government who are against it were leaking it left, right, and center, trying to get the word out. And and I think I would argue that rather than, you know, fight China on China's turf, which is bribery and repression, I think that probably the best way to fight this is on our terms, through democracy, transparency, accountability, rule of law, which is what the people of the Solomons want and have been fighting for. If there are free and fair elections, as they're scheduled to be in 2023, so Guevara will be out of power, and that will solve the problem, at least of the security deal. And all you need to do is do the things that we say we believe in, like investigate his corruption and his investments in Australia through disproportionate assets. We have the tools that are the, the tools that will create true and real security for the people of the Solomons. And they are things that we can do, but China can't. And we should focus, I think, on that. So why did the U.S. close its embassy in 1993? That was part of the whole end of history type thing, where uh, there was a, a retraction of U.S. Uh, strategic footprint uh, across many zones, but including the Pacific. And the idea was that zones like the Solomons would fall under the strategic oversight. And these are all very admittedly colonial constructs and that's why they don't work that you know this that australia would take would take over melanesia new zealand would take over polynesia that sort of thing and the problem is first of all uh the us and australia may or may not have the same interests in the region but more to the point the people of the region have very different relationships with each of those countries and by putting in an intermediary you're muting their voices so washington can't hear what the people of the solomons really want or need it passes via canberra which may, may or may not understand it and may or may not be distorting the message for their own purposes. But bottom line is that Canberra, the Australian capital, and this conservative government of this born-again guy that they call a happy clapper because he's one of those charismatic Christians that, where the spirit of Jesus moves him. I don't even know whether he believes in the, in the book of Revelation and the end times, which would disqualify him. But nevertheless, they've clearly dropped the ball and you mentioned that they're obviously a part of the Five Eyes. What happened with Australian intelligence and British and, and U.S. intelligence? I thought they had a pretty close liaison. They, so they do have good, they do, but uh, I'm not sure whether the PMO had, the, the Pacific Islands strategy has largely been led by um, development and trade. And it's they, their view of uh, strategic risks is not the same as those who would be from the defense and intelligence side. And and just just sort of on this issue of religion. In fact, you know, if if Prime Minister Morrison had brought that religious faith component into his relationship with the Solomons, he would have actually been in a better position because there are a lot of people of, of similar faith in the Solomons. But he would he didn't even listen to them. They didn't meet with church leaders who are very influential in their communities. So it's, you know, it, it's not using the elements you have. It's just it's just using this kind of very narrow, largely economic kind of colonial approach to looking at uh, at these countries, talking about Solomon's being in our backyard, for example. It really it's it's it is barely post-colonial and it just doesn't work. Arrogant is, would be the word. To use, right? Yeah, it, yeah, it's and and it's but paternalistic arrogance. Yeah, and, and now just, they're paying for it. Yeah, just and it's just it's disrespectful and it's not intelligent, you know. And it's it's assuming that you understand the operating environment of a place like Solomon's better than the leader of a provincial government, Daniel Sudani, who's the premier of Malaita Province. Uh, which is the province that went on the record right at the beginning as saying they didn't want to have anything to do with Chinese uh, uh, government investment. He himself passed through Australia twice on the way to medical treatment to Taiwan because Australia would not provide him with uh, affordable medical treatment. And nobody went to go meet with him. Nobody went to just go have a talk with him about what was going on in his province. It's at, it's at that level of, of lack of interest or engagement. Well, Cleo Pascal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Great, great pleasure. Thank you for covering this topic. It's an important one. 
And again, I've been speaking with Clea Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments in the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many others. And she is the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.